Hello, everyone. Welcome to Health Formation, the podcast where we give you health and wellness news to use. This is Katie. I'm your host, and I am here today with my guest co-host, Dr. Elizabeth Mills. Hi. Hi, Beth. Um, so you may remember Beth from episode six that she did with me on sugar and sugar substitutes. So if you haven't listened to that one, you should definitely go back and check it out. Um, but Beth is here today to chat with us because of today's topic. I thought that it was kind of in her wheelhouse and in her areas of interest. So Beth is, I guess, recently our president-elect for the North Carolina Association of Pharmacists, or NCAP. And since joining, or since, I guess, taking on that role or being elected in that role, um, she has grown in her area of interest for kind of PBMs and the different things that we talk about in today's episode. So I asked her to join in with me. So we kind of briefly wanted to talk a little bit about some of the terms you may hear in the episode today. So if you're not integrated into the pharmacy space, you may not know some of these words. Um, So I kind of want to give you a brief overview, and I will do that with my introduction for today's guest. So today's guest is Stephen Rhodes. He is a financial guy that kind of landed himself in the pharmacy space through his work with GPOs, which are group purchasing organizations. And so they kind of leverage their buying power to purchase drugs um, at better rates for independent pharmacies. So since independent pharmacies don't kind of have a group of people um, to purchase things at good rates, like maybe CVS or Walgreens does, they utilize the GPOs to help them do that. So Stephen works most specifically in kind of specialty markets across the whole US. Um, And through his work with GPOs, he has really started to learn more about all of the struggles that pharmacies are facing in today's weird healthcare market. And one of the big things that we talk about today is PBMs or pharmacy benefit managers. And I go into a little bit about what they are in the episode, but basically what you need to know at this point is that PBMs are the middleman between the health insurer and the pharmacy. So they were originally created to just help adjudicate claims for health insurers because pharmacies have so many more claims per day than the doctor's office. They were just made to kind of help streamline that process. But in that whole process of that happening, they've taken on a lot more power and have a lot more control of the flow of money now. What did I forget? Anything? Just that their control of the flow of money is very behind the scenes. It's um, not transparent at all. So a lot of what they are doing is still very secretive as far as we we feel the effects of what they're doing, but we really truly don't know all of, I don't know if I want to call them scams, but abuses that yes. they are practicing and it's really hurting our independent pharmacies and our small chain pharmacies um, specifically. An example would be um, DIR fees, which are direct and indirect remuneration fees that they charge on to these independent pharmacies. And as Beth just said, like the lack of transparency is so bad that these pharmacies are paying these fees and they don't even know what they're paying them for. So we have a large kind of battle ahead of us to fight the breadth of these PBMs if we want to 
continue having community pharmacy the way that it is today. Um, so I, this is kind of a different type of episode for us. I think that it was a super interesting conversation. We enjoyed talking to Steven. Um, so hopefully you'll learn something. If you want to get in contact with Steven, his company is Alliant GPO. And that is his purchasing um, organization company. And then he also has another technology company called Clarity RX, which is in beta. So if you are interested in um, learning more about him and his companies, you can look up those. And then his Twitter is Stephen RX, which is how I found him. Um, so let's transition right into our conversation with Stephen. Thank you so much for connecting with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for reaching out. It's always great to of chat course. with folks that are interested in these topics. Yeah, I thought your Twitter was interesting. I was telling her I found you on Twitter, and she's like, that's how I find people. On, I troll them on Twitter. <laughs> it's fascinating. I just joined Twitter like two months ago, and it's a really fascinating platform, like all the people you can connect on with uh, on there. And then like, if you start putting out a certain type of vibe, you kind of get that back. And mm -hmm. I've already been able to network with all sorts of people on there. It's been incredible. Mm -hmm. And people are really honest on Twitter, aren't they? They are. Yeah. I love it. And in the pharmacy industry, it's fascinating because like, if you look at LinkedIn versus Twitter, like LinkedIn, you know, everyone knows who they are. The pharmacists, the pharmacy owners, what they do is they kind of create like these pseudonyms on Twitter where they'll like really tell you what they think about things, which is very interesting in our space. Yes. Yes, that is true. And it's, I feel like it's a lot different too than Instagram where everyone tries to have like a picture perfect life. People just say whatever on Twitter. Oh, exactly. I was telling my wife because she's not on Twitter. I was, and she, like the things that she's always telling me about on Instagram that she likes and is most impactful for her are like text-based things and ideas. And I'm like, if that's what you like most about Instagram, you really need to get on Twitter because mm -hmm. that's like 2% of Instagram and 98% of Twitter. Mm -hmm. What does your wife do? She's an administrator at a charter school here in Nashville. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Where are y'all right now? Are you like in a pharmacy? I see some yep. pills in the background. <laughs> yeah, this is my pharmacy. It's very tiny. And so are y'all pharmacists? Yes. Yes. And y'all run this pharmacy? She does. You run it. <laughs> yeah. So um, I work at Campbell University, which is a pharmacy. Have you heard of it? No. Okay. So it's a pharmacy school in rural um, North Carolina, about okay. an hour south of Raleigh. Okay. And we both work here. We both do ambulatory care pharmacy. Um, but my practice site is here on campus. So this pharmacy is located inside of a health center, which services our employees and students. And so I'm the uh, pharmacist for that. And then I like see patients for diabetes, travel med. She works in a traditional doctor's office. Yeah, I work in, uh, in a, inside of a physician's office uh, practicing ambulatory care, but I also work at an independent pharmacy um, about two Saturdays a month. I have a lot of friends who own pharmacies. I used to run an independent, um, it was a franchise, Medicap, I don't know if you're familiar with Medicap or Medicine Shop. Yeah, sure. Um, so they got bought out by Cardinal. The ones around here got bought out by Cardinal. Some of them did not too long ago. So I worked, I ran the independent, but my big boss was Cardinal. Oh. And, and gotcha. she's also the president of our, of our um, pharmacy association, our state association. Oh, wow. Okay, incredible. Yes, oh, well, black, it, yes and it, it's 
like one of my main goals is to um, address the PBM issues in our state yeah. and try to get the word out and to hopefully be a part of the solution. That's uh well, that's awesome. Uh, Y'all cover like a really interesting kind of spectrum of the continuum of care on the pharmacy side. It sounds like this is one where I'm going to learn more from y'all than you're going to learn from me. So I'm kind of excited. Wait, so yeah, now we need to hear about you. <laughs> well, I'm not a pharmacist. Okay. So I got into the pharmacy business. I have a farm, um, financial engineering and economics background. And so I got into the pharmacy business um, just kind of accidentally because we moved to Nashville because my wife got a job um, with Teach for America. They placed her here. So we just moved here randomly. And then, you know, like healthcare is huge in Nashville. So I was like, I'm just going to go, you know, get a job at like this big healthcare company called HCA. And I went and I got this job and it ended up being a company that HCA owned um, their GPO called health trust. So, you know, if you think about like pretty much any, hospital company that owns hospitals in the United States, acute care and the ecosystem around acute care, um, CHS, a lot of the nonprofit ones too, like CHI, uh, LifePoint, um, they're all kind of not based here in Nashville, but some of them are, but they're kind of centrally purchasing through this company called Health Trust. So I just started there in finance and just was doing like drug supplies, commodities, just like financial analysis, like low man on the totem pole. And then just ended up kind of like getting more responsibility. I got put into like the pharmacy, dedicated pharmacy department. And I worked with a ton of pharmacists on the corporate side. So we had like kind of like supply chain pharmacists. These are guys that were, you know, they were RPHs, um, but they had, you know, kind of transitioned to more corporate type of responsibilities. And they had been around the industry forever you know, contracting with all the brand manufacturers was kind of like the main thing, you know, generic, we did a huge generics bid to price out all the generics every year. Uh, and then we had a clinical side as well. So we worked with them on like, you know, the formulary of drugs at the hospitals, just things along that line, along those lines. So that was kind of my foray into learning pharmacy was through those guys. I was kind of like their numbers brain and they would kind of teach me everything about pharmacy. And um, so that's been about 10 years now. When I left there, I was managing like a $7 billion drug portfolio for all the acute care wow. hospitals um, and had got an opportunity to negotiate these huge deals with all the pharma manufacturers, all the pharma wholesalers, you know, had, had done pharmacy distribution agreements for over 2,300 pharmacies all across the country, was leading a team that did all of the, um, our, our audits for the um, 503B outsource compounders. So got to travel all around the country and see kind of that pharma manufacturing side of things. So got to learn a ton about pharmacy. And so that's how I got into the business was that way, accidentally, just knowing the numbers and, and becoming friends with the pharmacists that needed to know the numbers. And they taught me about pharmacy along the way. So you were kind of negotiating like the pricing for the different, like the generics for different pharmacies that would supply the medications. Is that right? Like what does a supply chain pharmacist do? Well, so we were doing group purchasing. So we were organized as a group purchasing Ooh, organization. GPO. We're a GPO. And so, um, you know, all those individual 
corporations, they were members of the GPO and we were aggregating that spend and then negotiating with the generic manufacturers, the brand manufacturers, uh, the wholesalers, and then, you know, any software or service that flowed to the pharmacy, we were negotiating at scale for them. So we would typically, you know, try to pick like one preferred provider to get preferred pricing if it's for, you know, like software or, you know, generics is a little bit more nuanced because you might need two or three depending on the supply chain. So we had an office in China that would look into, you know, like API, where the API is coming from, where all the different manufacturers around the country, around the world. And then with brands, it's even more nuanced. So with brands, it's like figuring out what is our leverage here against the brand manufacturer, right? Can we use a different therapeutically equivalent product for this category and move between two not exactly equivalent products, but say that we're only going you know, to standardize on one. Is there things that you can do with data you know, to provide like market share data back to the brands that's valuable to them? And then I was also part of the first launch. It was the first launch of the first biosimilar into the U.S. healthcare market. We structured that deal with Tavo, which was the Nupigen, um competitor Granix. So that was like another way we did a lot of like development for biosimilars to, you know, just create that demand for them so that they can launch into the market um, and do it in a cost effective way. It's crazy to me how little I know about this. And this is like (laughs) the entire basis for the distribution portion of our profession. Yeah. It's the whole, how all that stuff gets on your shelf. But I don't think I knew how little I knew about it until we just started talking about this. Did, did you? Mm-mm. I mean, I knew that there were um, GPOs and I knew that independent pharmacies needed that buying power, so to speak, because they can't, in order to be able to compete with the large chains, they need that organization. Right. Yeah. So I knew they existed, but I didn't know to the extent to, to what all of it they did yeah they do a lot in the hospital world and so that is how i got involved that's how i got interested in the retail side of the business was i had done this kind of i want to say innovative it was just kind of like a different way to approach the contracting for wholesale distribution for all of our pharmacy wholesalers um with the with our hospital members and some of our um private equity partners that owned companies that had little retail pharmacies attached to them came to me and said, Hey, can you do kind of like the same thing that you did for the hospital based pharmacies for these retail pharmacies? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, so we started looking into it and I found out that the retail side of the business was kind of like completely different in that, you know, you had a little bit of consolidation and aggregated spend with the retail GPOs, but it just wasn't as maybe sophisticated as the hospital side. So um, I started telling my colleagues, hey, I think I'm going to, you know, start a retail GPO. (laughs) And they were like, oh, that's ridiculous. And, um, (laughs) you know, it just turned out like a little while after that, someone reached out that was a former colleague of mine that had worked at a specialty retail pharmacy in New Jersey. They needed help with their distribution agreement. And a couple of years later, we started a, a niche uh, kind of GPO in the fertility space for them and a few of the top fertility focused specialty pharmacies in the country. So this is how your business is, was born. That's how my business was born. And that's how I started to learn about the retail side of the business, which has been kind of like a whole new 
um, start for me because it's just totally, it's, it's, it's totally the same and, and it's totally different on this side because it's so much more, you know, dealing with the PBMs, um, you know, the insurance companies, the reimbursement and their businesses so, are just but, getting squeezed, squeezed so, more and more every year. And the, their margins are going down. It's just staying, it's, it's getting harder to stay in business. Okay. But then you have like the regular pharmacy retail pharmacy and specialty pharmacy, which mm-hmm. from your perspective, I feel like would be completely different or are they more similar than I would imagine? Uh, I mean, you know, specialty pharmacy just means that it's expensive. Right. Basically. And so, you know, there's pharmacies that special eyes in, you know, expensive therapies like, you know, HIV, RA, you know, Crohn's, like ones where there's expensive drugs you know, we see two models. Basically, there's ones where pharmacies, they focus on a particular subset of specialties and they scale that up across the country. So they'll have licenses in all 50 states and they'll ship out medicines overnight or some combination of that and community pharmacy. So, you know, we have a few examples of um, kind of family-owned businesses that they bought a community pharmacy and we're running that and kind of discovered a specialty along the way and then scaled that up um, and maybe dropped community pharmacy. We have examples where pharmacies have, you know, a storefront in Manhattan, for example, and you would walk in and it looks just like a community pharmacy. They'll fill any kind of maintenance med script that you have, but they're also operating as a specialty pharmacy. They're shipping out meds all over the country as well. But like when you're negotiating the prices, at least from my understanding from how the PBMs work with the specialty medications, there's a lot more like rebates that happen between the pharmacy, the patient, the PBM, yeah. the manufacturer. Can you explain that a little? I wish. I have the um, kind of the convenience of being solely focused on the procurement side. So the only thing that my company and me that we try to do is lower the acquisition cost for pharmacies. Mm. So when you're talking about negotiating with PBMs and with payers, that falls into the realm of uh, something called a PSAO, which is like a GPO for payers, basically. So, you know, pharmacies are retail business. They, They buy things and try to sell them at a higher price. We help pharmacies buy things at the lowest possible price and PSAOs, they help pharmacies sell things at the highest possible price, essentially. So you see a couple of different models right now. And I tweet a lot about PBMs because I'm like trying to learn more about it. So I go in to every financial statement for the publicly traded companies and I read every single word in there and just try to learn like how their financials work because it's just fascinating to me like where all this money is going to your point about the, the just the flow of rebates alone because if you look at the incentives it's very interesting that like the pbms and even the employers to some extent maybe we can get into that are kind of pitted against the patient and mm-hmm. like where the actual value is going and who's incentivized to do what uh, in the market is just fascinating to me. 
Okay, so let me like briefly for anyone who's listening to this and doesn't know what a PBM is, explain it. So PBM is a pharmacy benefit manager. So it is the company that your health insurance contracts your pharmacy claims through. And so the problem with PBMs is now that there are three major PBMs that have a monopoly over 75, 76% of all the prescriptions that are filled. So that would be Express Scripts, Optum, and CVS Caremark. So the likelihood, if you look at your insurance card, you either have a separate insurance card for your PBM or on your insurance card in the little lower right-hand corner of it, there's a box that would say, usually it's the box, it would say OptumRx, and then it has the information for billing in the corner. And so the real problem is that those PBMs are then owned by the insurance companies. So obviously CVS Caremark is owned by CVS Health, Optum is owned by um, United Healthcare, and so it's very convoluted kind of the way the money goes to be very beneficial for the insurance companies to make the money. And originally the whole intention of them was to kind of streamline the process for the big insurers because PBMs were processing all of those millions of claims. And then also to ensure that the patients were kind of not being charged too much money. Uh, But now it's come to this big thing where the PBMs are making all the money as this in middleman and the independent pharmacies, as you said earlier, are getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and kind of just losing all their, losing their head, basically. Right. Um, what so did you say? PBMs were, were created to protect the patient, to protect the consumer. It was supposed to lower drug prices overall. And what has happened, PBMs have been around for a really long time. So I think originally they did serve that purpose, but over the years, they realized how much money they really could make, I think. Well, and, and part of the problem was when they were first created, you know, it was more of like a capitalistic thing where there were lots of them. So mm-hmm. they were fighting for your business. Now there's only three. So they really set the, I mean, three major ones. Right. So they really set the the pricing for everything and you kind of if you want to be mm-hmm. if you want to be contracted with Blue Cross Blue Shield then you have to use Express Scripts and that's what in North Carolina 75% of your patients have Blue Cross Blue Shield mm-hmm. you can't not say so I'm going to serve not serve 75% of North them now, I think so the PBM <laughs> set the they set the price of the drug they tell they set the price that the patient pays they set the price that they're going to reimburse for the drug and they also tell patients where they can go to get their prescriptions filled um, and exclude mainly independent pharmacies, but they exclude small chain pharmacies too, like um, grocery stores that have pharmacies in them. The, they, they would, to me, be lumped more into the independents as far as how they're being treated by PBMs. And they set all the pricing, and you want to know the best part? No one knows the prices except for them. Right. That's the problem. That's no where the problem is and, and just to be clear, when you say set the price, we're talking about the price that the payer, which is the plan sponsor, which could be the government or right. your employer in the right. case of commercial insurance is paying the PBM, which, you know, originally they started as third party administrators, which was we're selling a service to these employers to administer this benefit to their employees, which is 
really just kind of a simple adjudication business that you oh, yeah, can build with software. Um, formulary management is another big service that they offer, which, you know, a team of 20 pharmacists can probably do that for the whole country. I mean, they're basically just looking at a list of drugs and saying, well, if you put the generic on formulary instead of the brand, it should cost less, you know, a, a biosimilar instead of a, an innovator, you know, they just, they pick, you know, kind of the most cost-effective medicine for each kind of therapeutic area. But to your point, how they kind of have evolved over time is they got put into that position, which initially I think they had good intentions, um, but they just figured out that they had tons of leverage um, because they, they kind of operate on this side of the supply chain to where the payers, the government, the employers, they don't have any kind of insight into the price. So the pharmacies do. The pharmacies, they buy their drugs on the open market from wholesalers, direct from manufacturers, from primary and secondary wholesalers. Um, right, but they don't know how much they're going to get reimbursed for that drug. So what we're hearing from our, you know, all the communities that we're involved in on social media and, you know, the, the, our friends that own pharmacies is that it doesn't matter really what you purchase the price or purchase the drug for the PBM can reimburse you anything they want. And that reimbursement often is less than what the pharmacy is actually paying for the drug. So they're getting reimbursed below what the actual cost is either initially or in the form of the clawbacks where they're, you know, the actual cost of the drug is less than the patient's copay. So then the PBM will come back and claw back that money that difference in that price and sometimes they claw back more than what the difference was so then it ends up being maybe three months later they're getting money taken back and it's below what they actually paid for the drug it's a gross abuse you know pbms they're masters at finding loopholes and contracts and here in the past few years they figured out a way to to exploit this you know, kind of clause or loophole in the contracts around DIR fees, which is, you know, the most straightforward way to describe DIR fees would just be to say that the PBMs can make up qualitative and quantitative measures that they measure a pharmacy by. They make up the, the, the measure and then they measure them. And then they just use that as an excuse to say that they owe them some sometimes completely arbitrary amount of money back. So I feel like it's always completely arbitrary. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they make I mean, up everything and they make up the price that they charge the the payer and the employer. They make up the price that they reimburse the pharmacy and then they make up the amount that they claw back from them. And it's just all comes out of thin air basically. So for an example, um, I have a friend who has three stores and he in 19 or sorry, in, 2019, he paid $1.3 million in these arbitrary fees. $1.3 million that for, for what? It's kind of funny, like the way we're describing it makes it sound like it can't be real, but this is really like it's what really we're happening. dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Like it's real. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it's sick that the way, the way they position themselves, they, they spend ungodly amounts of money on lobbying and oh, on yeah. marketing and um you know the way that they sell it to 
everyone is that they're saving money with numbers that they make up because they they make up the you know quote unquote list price that they're starting from and the the arbitrary amount of discounts that go to the patients and the payers the employers and it's really just kind of all a big smoking smoking mirrors game so tell us a little bit more about how from your perspective of like the pro procurement of the drug that kind of helps to influence the amount of money that the patient gets. Yeah, no, I think I, I, I hear what you're saying there. And so I think, I, you know, I have a unique perspective in that I can negotiate with the manufacturers and work with pharmacies. So, you know, we kind of can get to an idea of what the true price of a drug is and uh, I think a really good example of what's going on right now, just as far as, you know, misaligned incentives would be this whole concept of the preferred formulary position. So what happens today is that, you know, say there is a specialty drug that costs um, $1,000. Uh, a manufacturer will pay a rebate of $600 to the PBM to have preferred formulary position. And it, we're getting more to a place to where, you know, historically the PBMs would keep that money. Um, some of the, the larger uh, employers and some groups of employers that, that have come together to negotiate with PBMs have gotten deals now where more of that rebate flows back to employers. And that's what we're going to see more in the future is hundred percent rebate rebate um, go back to the employers, which sounds like a good thing, except for the fact that that money doesn't end up back with the patient. So thousand um, dollar list price, right there, the manufacturer, the manufacturer sells the drug to a wholesaler who sells it to a retail pharmacy who sells it to the patient, right? the manufacturer could just cut that list price to $400 and they would make the same amount, but they, the PBM then wouldn't list it on their formulary because they're not paying them off anymore. Right? So what happens is that now with this trend um, towards co-insurance, you end up kind of with this perverse incentive structure to where, you know, the co-insurance says it was going to be, you know, uh, 20%. That 20% is not based off of the net net cost of the drug. It's based off the thousand dollars. Right. So they're going to be paying $200 and the patient. the patient, the patient is getting the drug. The patient that is, if you to back up, the patient is the employee of the employer, mm -hmm. right? That's their a portion of their, their money is going out of their paycheck every month and it's going to their employer to administer their health plan on their behalf. And so now their employer who's outsourced the management of the pharmaceuticals to the PBM and the employer is getting rebate money back from the PBM, they're in control of that formulary in which drug the patient has access to. So instead of being in a position to where they can get that drug at a net net price, now they have to pay an even higher co-insurance or co-payment 
to get access to a drug just so that their employer can get that rebate money. And that rebate money doesn't go back to any individual patient. It just goes back into wherever the employer wants it to go. And the thing that is interesting about that is that the, well, at least in my experience, the employer that's negotiating all of that, they're not, they don't have a medical degree. They don't know what they're negotiating. They're looking at numbers and money. Yeah. So they might not be choosing the medications that are therapeutically the best for their patients to get. They're choosing the ones that they can get the biggest rebate. It's just, yeah, exactly. It's just based on the highest rebate. And even the, the PBM executives themselves have described the CEOs of the corporations, the employers that are in these structures as being addicted to the rebate check. You were going to say something. Are you talking about these CEOs that are making like $30 million a year? Yep. (laughs) Exactly. So what, okay. So I've seen in your tweets that you tweet a lot about CVS Caremark. Like we all hate CVS Caremark, obviously. (laughs) So what have you, you said you were like reading, what have you found in your financial reading? Are you cracking the code of like where CVS Caremark is stealing all the money from the whole uh, insurance healthcare industry? Well, you know, so the so the the major problem with CVS Caremark, and it's not just them. The big problem is, you know, PBMs owning pharmacies. So, you know, if we just think about the the macro, you know, kind of landscape, we're looking at a market where the entities that control the money, right? The PBMs are controlling 80% of the market. Now they all own their own pharmacies. And we've already established that the PBMs are controlling how much the pharmacies get reimbursed. So they have kind of a, a, a another perverse incentive that we've discovered here is that they are making money on you know, the plan administration they're making money uh, on rebates and on administrative fees on the PBM side, on the insurance side. And now they can steer that business into their own pharmacies and they can make money that way. And at the same time, they can control the margins of any other pharmacies that are competing against their own pharmacies. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think first order thinking, you might look at it and say, well, you know, that's just, the nature of capitalist markets, you know, greater economies of scale and consolidation, vertical integration, you know, ultimately they're going to get the best price on everything. But what you end up with is, you know, an oligopoly of essentially three companies. And if they got what they wanted, they would squeeze every other independent pharmacy out of the market that competes with them. And now we're left with, three entities that now control all of the pricing uh, and prices will surely go up. So, you know, the past few years, I think I've seen more headlines than ever about skyrocketing drug costs. Um, And it's been kind of like in the zeitgeist in the media around how high drug costs are. But uh, the, the data on the wholesale level is the brand and generic costs have gone down. Uh, year over year for the past several years. So the the drug costs are coming from the payer side and it's coming from insurance and it's coming from the PBMs. So, you know, 
if we end up in a place where the PBMs are able to continue to do what they've been doing, you know, in 2009, the average independent pharmacy was making $300,000 per store. And um, in 2018, I think it's down to 120,000 per store. I'm surprised it's even that much. Yeah, which is, it's now at parity with what a retail pharmacist can make if they go work for CVS, essentially. So, you know, there's no kind of entrepreneurial um, capitalist incentive for pharmacists to, to be their own boss, to offer their services to the marketplace. Um, they're all kind of just getting sucked up into these big conglomerate companies that really, at the end of the day, they just want to put everyone else out of business so that they can completely control the pricing landscape and make sure that they're able to extract as much value out of the U.S. healthcare consumer as they possibly can. Have you heard about this trolling thing? Didn't haven't heard about that. So there is uh, a new complaint that is surfacing from uh, pharmacies that these PBMs like CVS, Caremark, well, you know they're trying to move a majority of their prescriptions to mail order, right? So they want as many patients to use mail order as they can because then they, they it's cheaper for them apparently to fill it. Yeah, it's and automated. It's, nine, it's 90 days, um, which opens up a whole nother can of worms and, and problems. But what I'm hearing now are that um, these uh, mail order pharmacies are calling independent pharmacies and smaller chains and saying that the they're calling on behalf of the patient the patient has asked to transfer all their prescriptions out to a mail order and so a lot of these independents you know they know their their patients really really well a lot of them are you know friends family they're in the community so a lot of them will say well let me check with the patient first before i do this contact the patient the patient knows nothing about it patient is not authorizing for them to have all their prescriptions transferred out. And I'm seeing it on Facebook. I'm seeing it on Twitter. I'm seeing, and I'm hearing patients say, you know, that, that they're mad because, you know, they now have this CVS Caremark or OptumRx and they're trying to be forced to go to mail order. Wow. No, that's okay. incredible. I haven't heard about that. Not surprised though. I've seen it with specialty pharmacies where like they'll try to fill it somewhere else and then the specialty pharmacy will call and they'll be like, it, like so say you have CVS Caremark and you try to fill it at Walgreens Specialty, just for example. Mm -hmm. They'll say it will go immediately go to PA, obviously, when the, it goes into specialty and the, all the pharmacists there will start to work on the prior authorization. Well, while they're working on it, CVS Pharmacy, specialty pharmacy will call the patient and say, if you transfer your prescription to us, you won't need a prior authorization. We can get it for you today. And they'll steal the prescription from the other pharmacy so, while they're processing it and while they're working on the PA. So cutthroat. It's horrible. That's horrible. They're going to have to do the PA as well though, right? Are they, is that truthful what they're saying? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I guess if they own, if it's oh, their uh, own. They own the <laughs> They own the PBM. <laughs> they don't have to. <laughs> They're the ones controlling the PA. So, okay. So what do you think are some solutions? Like what can we do as pharmacists and maybe consumers and patients 
Yeah. Like, how can we help? Is there anything we can do? Um, you know, I think sadly some of this is going to come down to um, government intervention. Uh, I'm I'm pure bet bred um, kind of capitalist and small government guy through and through, but it's just gotten to a point to where you know they're they're so far down the road on this that there's going to have to be you know, some kind of antitrust involvement uh, in the industry. And, and I hate to say that because I know that they'll screw it up, but. Didn't CVS already pay an antitrust for their care, like when they bought Caremark? Yeah. So they, I mean, they've been paying, you know, penalties for antitrust for, you know, perpetuating the, the opioid epidemic and everything else so that, you know, the, politicians uh, can get their their headlines of their wins and you know throw like a billion dollar fee or whatever it is out there but at the end of the day it's just a drop in the bucket for these companies mm -hmm. I mean you know until it's pennies compared to what they're making it's nothing really I mean you know until there's some you know kind of more systemic change um, in the system they're going to continue to do what they're doing so for consumers you know, the, uh, one thing you can always do, especially if you're on specialty medications and it seems like your co-insurance and your co-payment is a lot, is ask for cash prices. You know, that used to be a, something that the PBMs could put in their contract, uh, these gag orders to say, you know, if you, you can't tell anyone the cash price if you want to stay in our network. And if you start dispensing, dispensing cash, then, you know, we'll kick you out. Um, I think that I'm pretty sure that's pretty much it's been illegal. repealed now, right? It's illegal. Mm -hmm. So they, they can't do that anymore. So, you know, if I was a consumer and, was, and I was on a high cost medication, I would definitely ask for cash price and I wouldn't do it at CVS or Walgreens. I would, I would look for independent pharmacy in my community. And, you know, if it is a kind of a smaller niche uh, therapeutic area, even look uh, around the country because there's going to be a pharmacy you know, even one state over or several states over that can ship it to you next day, just like CVS and Walgreens do. And a lot of times, you know, they're doing pretty high volumes. They're shipping out to all 50 states and they have pretty good prices on these things. And they're willing to give you a cash price that might even be lower than what your coinsurance is. Um, so I think that's, that's worth looking into as a consumer, especially for high cost specialty meds. So who are, who are your, who are your, um, pharmacies that you are you working with mostly independent pharmacies or do you work with small chains too uh they're all you know independent and specialty pharmacies for the most part so we kind of all across the united states or yeah just... all across the united states um and um you know they're mostly pharmacies that offerings from retail gpos um just don't really fit their model because they do a lot more high cost specialty drugs so we do kind of things that are really more geared towards pharmacies that are doing that. Um, and then we developed a proprietary way um, to help the pharmacies monitor their drug costs. And so we package that into a, a software now that we're rolling out to like pretty much any independent pharmacy, like even the ones that are not a part of our network and are not focused on specialty. So any independent, as long as the pharmacy is not, you know, associated with PBM or um, one of the big, like big box chains will service them. So 
you know, that ends up being family owned businesses uh, and some, you know, venture capital uh, and private equity back um, businesses as well. What's it called? So the, we have a, a GPO called Alliance GPO and our software company is called Clarity RX. So have you, have people use that or is it still like being created? The Clarity RX. So that's in beta. Um, my GPO members use it and some non-GPO users were allowing in now. So it, it kind of depends on, on the pharmacy and what their needs are. We may have some people that would like to beta that. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I think, go, kind of going back to my thing of like, my question of okay. how can we help? Yeah, yeah. My opinion, which I'm going to share, uh-huh. is that people need to become educated on this topic because even pharmacists who are practicing pharmacy don't know the fact that like PBMs are completely changing the way that we have our profession and like if we don't learn and do something about it our community pharmacy is not going to exist in 10 years i would say we have a max of 10 years to go if we keep proceeding at this rate yeah well and it's going to be most noticeable in the rural areas where um, we might not have any chain large chain pharmacies and we have just an independent who's serving a community and now that independent has to close uh, because they're unable to um, overcome all of these fees and and different abuses from the PBMs. And then the patients are gonna suffer because they're gonna have to drive an hour, hour and a half to the closest pharmacy. No, they're not. They're gonna have to use their mail order. Obviously, come on, PBMs are saving the world with their mail order. (laughs) <laughs> um, which have you well, ever been in a have you ever been in one of these mail order pharmacies i've seen pictures of them but i've never been in i'm it's, sure it's incredible. i mean it, they're like these big warehouses and you know there's these carousels going around it, i mean it's like a it's like a factory basically with and huge robot inside probably yeah there's but robots and like then you know the pharmacists they're working in shifts like warehouse workers and they're just behind computers, just, you know, cranking out the scripts and the conditions aren't great. I don't know. It's just, it's kind of bizarre. There's definitely a place for them. Um, It's just, you know, it's not the working conditions that I want my healthcare providers to be in, Mm -hmm. I guess is kind of my thought around it. We're not like at all using any of our medical knowledge in that, in that capacity. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I think it, there's just, it, it's definitely just kind of disconnected from a human standpoint. And just con- thinking of all the waste that a uh, mail order pharmacy results in, you see all kinds of stories out there on patients getting 90 day supplies over and over again. They're not maybe even went off the drug and they're not even using it anymore. And you see it even more with supplies like diabetes supplies. Um, There's just, I work in a doctor's office. So I see the forms that come from the mail order pharmacies asking the providers to authorize their next six months with, you know, to get their supplies. And it's basically, they just send this form and it says, I authorize this pharmacy to dispense this, 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 and this. And it'll be a list, like 
alcohol, I think things that patients normally don't even want, but there's alcohol swabs, there's this, there's that, there, you know, band-aids, whatever. And then the, all the provider has to do is sign the bottom and that authorizes them to ship all of this garbage to these patients who they don't even need it. Wow. And they don't have to, a lot of it's auto refill. Mm -hmm. So it just ships every 90 days. And I've, I have patients bring me boxes of drugs, like just from a six month period where they're like, I don't know what to do with all this stuff. You know, I just, what do I do? And so where can I take it? Cause I want to dispose of it. Cause I'm scared somebody's going to get into it or, or what have you. Um, That's incredible. Ridiculous. And you know, going back to what we were talking about before that, the PBM owned pharmacy is, is giving themselves five gold stars on their adherence because they ship those drugs. <laughs> yep. Yes. That's exactly what I was just thinking about. That's how they, that's another part of how they get their reimbursements up from like Medicare. Yeah. Their patients are 100% adherent because their PBC is at 100. Well, right. people aren't taking that stuff. We see them bring it in and throw it away. Yeah. They're not taking it. That's crazy. That is crazy. I would love to see a study looking at outcomes of patients who are 100% adherent to their medication getting it from a mail order versus somebody who's getting like a high quality care from an independent yeah. pharmacy who might not be at a hundred percent, but they're actually having a relationship with their, um, okay. Anything else? What did we, is there anything that we didn't ask you that we should have asked you that would is cool or unique or something that you want us to know about your niche market? You know, um, the, the only thing I was thinking of is we were talking about what can we do and we talked about, um, you know, as consumers, pharmacists can educate themselves. Um, employers can educate themselves as well. Like definitely, you know, HR people and people involved with benefits need to be educating themselves about the first, second, and third order effects about of the contracting decisions they're making. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I was thinking more even about, you know, the independent pharmacy as a business, you know, in the meantime, like what can we do and, you know, before this 10 years is up, and there's no more community pharmacy business. And, you know, I think the pharmacies that I'm seeing that are successful and they're growing, um, you know, they're, they're doing things to stay profitable, whether it's, um, you know, like pursuing cash markets, you know, finding some sort of niche, um, and really focusing on it, whether it's a certain therapeutic area or, you know, compounding or um, even like veterinarian, uh, veterinary medicine, compounding. you know, I think expanding services and the medicalization of pharmacy is a huge opportunity that's coming right now with provider status being issued uh, in, in most states and some kind of option for provider status. I think, you know, um, administering vaccines and, getting the ability to bill the, uh, the pharmacy benefit and the medical benefit for vaccines is a huge opportunity for pharmacies. And then just like scaling and partnering, I've, you know, sometimes I run into pharmacies that, especially independent pharmacies that are, you know, they're maybe independent to a fault and they're reticent to, you know, do JVs to, to partner with private equity, which, rightly so, but I've seen some pharmacies do it in the right way to where 
pharmacists are still able to maintain their autonomy, but they're able to kind of scale up across a larger organization of pharmacies, whether it's through common equity ownership or investors that wants to get involved. Uh, and they're, they're able to get some economies of scale for themselves with the payers and with the manufacturers and wholesalers. So I think there's opportunities there for independent pharmacies. And then just the, the last one's technology and innovation. You know, there's lots of pharmacies that are just doing the same thing that they've always done. And, and those pharmacies are going to go out of business. I mean, there's just no, no way around it really. I mean, any opportunity to integrate technology, whether it's, you know, technology to, to communicate with your patients, you know, text-based, app-based kind of things, communicate with the prescribers, you know, make it easier to do those prior authorizations, make it easier for them to send script business to your pharmacy. Um, and then just like innovation, which doesn't even have to be technology, but, you know, anything uh, that you can do to differentiate yourself uh, as an independent pharmacy and position yourself against, you know, mail order and CVS and Walgreens, which they suck. So it's not, you know, you can find one, one or two th things to uh, kind of, you know, point out that are good about yourself that are bad about the big box chains. I think, you know, any of those combination of things that, that I'm seeing independent pharmacies doing, um, they're the ones that are, that are most successful right now. So I hope that, that pharmacies that, you know, especially like ones guys that are looking to retire. I hope they don't sell to CVS and Walgreens, like find a private equity company, find a young pharmacist and like structure a creative deal because we, we definitely need independent pharmacies. And, I, and, you know, I think it's very tempting just to sell out to the big box chains when they come in and make your offers. But I, if you add value through some of these other ways, you can get an even higher multiple through uh, other avenues. That was one of the things um, we had talked about at a conference I went to several years ago now, but the, the, they said the number one reason that indep independents don't want to sell to the, to the chains, but the number one reason that they do is because they don't know like who to sell it to that would want to buy their pharmacy. So, you know, we need to get, I, I guess us as educators, we need to be teaching our students, like if you're interested in ownership, go let that person know, like, at XYZ pharmacy on the corner, like when you're ready to retire, I might be ready to buy your pharmacy. So at least give me a call. Like, don't, don't forget about me. For sure. Yeah. Reaching out to, to pharmacists uh, directly, you know, even if it's a couple of years ahead of time, like, you know, start a relationship with a pharmacist and um, let, you know, get to know each other. I think that goes a long way. I mean, you're talking about someone who's built a business over decades. They don't want to see it go to waste or just get gobbled up by a, a corporation. So yeah, if young, young pharmacists out there that are interested in entrepreneurship, I would definitely recommend that. I would definitely recommend looking at a search fund model, which is a model where you don't have to have any money. Uh, you can raise money from investors and still own a huge portion of the business yourself. So just Google search funds. That's a great way to go out and acquire a pharmacy and or reach out to me <laughs> if you want to buy an independent pharmacy i'll connect you with private equity we all we, i think we're about to buy a pharmacy after this conversation <laughs> uh, let's all buy one together i got a few in mind let's do it let's, do it. let's okay. do it yeah well for somebody who's not a pharmacist you know an awful lot about the pharmacy business and we appreciate that and we appreciate all that you are doing to try to help independents stay afloat because it's rough seas out there <laughs> 
when is Clarity going to, RX going to roll out of beta and be more widespread? Uh, probably uh, at the end of Q3. I think we'll probably open it up um, and there'll be, we'll, we'll have like probably a lower tier for any pharmacy to kind of get in there and run their own financials and do their own modeling. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for making that and helping our our profession not <laughs> to shrivel up and become something we don't want it to become. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm doing what I can, but it's been great talking to y'all. I hope um, we get to do it again sometime and um, y'all uh, keep up the good fight for independent pharmacies up there as well. All Thank right. you. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Right. Y'all take care. All you right, too. Bye. bye. Thanks. Bye.